Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. It is well, amen? All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Acts chapter 16. If um, you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you in the pew. I don't know if I'm on yet or not. Is it coming through yet? There we go. All right, Acts chapter 16, we're going to pick up where we left off last week as we finished the Jerusalem Council, which took place in Acts chapter 15, where uh, the elders and the apostles all got together, and they all met up together to talk about what to do with Gentiles coming into the church. Should they be circumcised or not? Do they need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And so the good news was they don't have to do anything to be saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so you don't have to pretty yourself up. You just got to come to the cross and bow before it. Amen? And so this was the good news, and so as we get into Acts chapter 16, Paul and now Silas, not Barnabas, are going to start the second missionary journey, and they're going to go back through, and they're going to deliver that good news to different churches. And so I want you to see that this morning, discipleship is a dirty job, but we've all got to do it. Maybe you've heard that that saying before, oh, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it, right? Someone's got to do it. So um, I don't know if you know this about me. I'm not OCD, okay, no matter what my family will tell you. Uh, I just don't like messes, right? I just don't like messes. I, I think things need to be orderly. I think things need to be in their place. I think if you make a mess, you should clean it up, right? That's kind of my mindset. Like, I think that's, that's pretty reasonable. Um, I, they make fun of me for different things, though, like because when Christmas time comes around and everyone is having that nice, joyful explosion of unwrapping presents and papers flying everywhere and no one cares where the trash is going. It's just all over the floor, there's got to be responsible people in the family like myself who walk around with a trash bag and help you unwrap your, tra- your, your present and put the paper in the trash. Like, I'm just helping you, right? Some of you. Yeah, I, I love it. I love, there's some of you in here nodding your heads because you know we all belong in the family, right? We all belong there. And it's a dirty job. Somebody's got to do it. Well, discipleship is a dirty job. And the reason is because discipleship involves you getting your hands dirty, involves you getting in to people's lives. And as we get into Acts chapter 16, we're going to see the story of four different people who come to faith as Paul is going on this missionary journey, and he's getting his hands dirty. He's actually going to where they are and getting involved in their lives. And so Robbie Gallaty, he has this great definition of what discipleship is. What is discipleship really? It's meeting someone where they are and helping them conform more fully to the truths of God revealed in Christ. What a great definition. Think about that just in the first part, meeting someone where they are. Discipleship's dirty because you got to get out of your comfort zone. You got to get out of your normal routine. You've got to actually engage someone where they are. And not only that, you have to help them conform more fully to the truths of God revealed in Christ. So then you're having to help conform. So if you think about the imagery of someone who uh, works with a potter's clay or something like that, their hands are disgusting, right? They, they've got the, the molding clay all over their hands. You've got to get your hands dirty in discipleship. And that means getting involved in someone's life. That means going to where they are and spending time with them. The Apostle Paul, he writes about the dirtiness of discipleship in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. And some of this may sound familiar to you. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, 
that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now think about what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, listen, I have had to adapt my lifestyle so that I can win some. To the weak, to the Gentile, to the ones under the law, he didn't say that I have now engaged in the things that they're doing because he says, look, I'm not outside the law of God, but I'm actually under the law of Christ, so I'm not engaging in sin myself, but I'm adapting my life because I'm willing to meet people where they are to help them conform more fully into the image of Jesus Christ, discipleship. He says these things because Paul wants us, he wants us to know that discipleship adapts to take the gospel to all cultures and all people. It adapts to take the gospel to all cultures and all people. But, this is super important, it doesn't adopt or approve, or approve of sin to do so. It adapts to take the gospel to all people where they are, but it does not adopt or approve of sin in order to do so. And I think that's where it gets really messy because we are in a culture that needs Christ. Am I right? We're in a culture that desperately needs for Christians to, to get out of their comfort zone, to get out of their normal cycle of, of the, the bubble that we're in, to engage the world, to, to adapt whatever we need to do in order to, that we might see some saved, right? So that we can conform them more fully into the image of God. We've got to step out of our comfort zone, get our hands dirty, engage in discipleship. But what it doesn't mean is that we adopt a sinful lifestyle to do that or approve of their sinful lifestyle in order to do that. And that's where it gets really messy and really sticky. And so as we get into the narrative today, I want you to understand this is a biblical narrative. And as Luke is writing this, you're going to be, be able to see that it gets really personable for Luke because he, he's in the text. And so as he writes these things, it's not, you know, prescriptive of how we are to live every single second of our life, but it is more descriptive of what it looks like to be a disciple who makes disciples. So let me pray. And we'll jump into Acts chapter 16. Gracious Lord, we love you. We thank you so much that you have called us to be a part of your kingdom, that you've called us out of darkness into marvelous light, that you've allowed us to be a part of the mystery of expanding the gospel to all cultures and all nations and all tribes and all peoples. And God, that means even in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and our own families and even in our church, Lord, you've called us to make disciples. So, Lord, help us to adapt in ways that we need to in order to win some. Use us for your kingdom and for your glory. Father, we give you all the credit, all the praise. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first thing I want you to see is verses 1 through 10. Disciples make disciples out of young students. Disciples make disciples out of young students. So Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them 
for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let me just pause right there. Here's what's going on. So he, he's going back through. He comes across this young disciple named Timothy, right? Very familiar person in the Bible, First and Second Timothy, are actually written to him. And so he comes across this guy that we see as a young man who has a Jewish mother and a Greek father, and he's uncircumcised. Now, Paul does not go against what has just been talked about in the previous chapter of you got to be circumcised to be saved. No, he's actually doing it because this is going to be a stumbling block as he joins him on the missionary journey. And so he becomes all things to all people and so that he might win some. This is the reason I covered those verses. So he is actually doing and adapting whatever he needs to adapt in order that he might win some. And so the churches are actually growing because you don't have to get circumcised anymore to be part of the church. And so they're growing and increasing in numbers daily. Verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately... We sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is God's word. What do we learn about Timothy from these verses? Number one, we've already said it. He's young. He is from a Jewish mom and a Greek dad. But we also learn that he was a disciple. That means that probably in Paul's first missionary journey as he passed through Lystria, this was one of the converts or his family was a convert that, that took place during that time. And we know that he was raised as a disciple from early childhood. 2 Timothy actually says this in verse 1, 5 through 7, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. What a remarkable thought that he was discipled from childhood by his grandmother and his mother. It is multi-generational. Listen, you look around in this room right now, you can see grandmothers and mothers and kids, right? We are a multi-generational church, and that's the way it's supposed to be because we are passing down the faith from one generation to the next. We are raising up a generation that young people, you need to fan into flame the gift of God that he's put on your life. There's no coincidence that God raised you in in a Christian home. There's no coincidence that he's raising you up in a church that wants to point you towards Christ. This is what the church does, that we make disciples who make disciples, and those disciples happen in the church. Even young people from childhood, they're to fan in the flame the gift of God. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been equated with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Listen, from childhood, there are some of us in here who have been acquainted with the scriptures from childhood. And just a show of hands, how how many of you in here were raised in a home where you knew about God's word? And you want to raise your kids in a way that does that. Now, there's some out there, we're going to get to these stories that aren't raised in the church, but Timothy, he starts off, this is where discipleship begins. It starts in the church, in the home, in the family of God, grandmother, 
mother, and now Timothy growing up in the scriptures. We know that he's young because in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's written probably some 14 years later than this initial meeting. And if, if Timothy's young 14 years later, guess what? He's really young right now. He's probably a teenager. He's probably a teenager that people are noticing that he is setting an example of purity and love and faith. Listen, young people, your purity is so under attack. Your purity is under attack. And it doesn't matter if you're, if you're 14 or 44, you're to set an example to the brethren of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, what it means to walk in purity and in love and faithfulness. We are called to be witnesses. We're called to make disciples who make disciples. And one of the ways that we make disciples is by being a witness, by keeping ourselves unstained from this world. Listen, young people, there's a, there's a thing that's here in my pocket that you have to really battle against. Am I right? Now, adults, we don't even know how to use this thing, right? My kids were making fun of me the other day. I was trying to make a post, and I was using my fingers like this. So all week long, they've been making fun of me. Had, Look at how dad types, Right? I was like, oh, it happened. I got old. Okay. Look, discipleship begins in the family of God. And it begins with kids. And look, this week, what a wonderful opportunity that from childhood, we can walk with them through the Holy Scriptures to show them what it means to be someone who follows Jesus Christ for their whole life. That they would be raised in an environment that, by God's grace, maybe they would, they would walk away into adulthood unstained from the things of this world that are trying to harm their purity. Am I right? Amen? Discipleship is dirty. Paul, he circumcised Timothy. That's dirty business, right? He got involved. He met him where he was. Listen, some of you, you're going to disciple this week, and it might be changing diapers. It might be wiping runny noses. You might be getting really sweaty hugs from little tiny kids that you're like, they need to shower. <laughs> but it's discipleship. It's pouring yourself into the next generation, knowing that one day you will be passing the baton of faith and that the church and the church leadership will be in their hands. And you want me to tell me how fast that happens? We're going to wake up tomorrow and the the next generation is going to be leading the church, leading the charge for God's glory and his gospel and his grace. So let's be faithful. Discipleship is dirty, and sometimes discerning who to disciple is very difficult. It says in verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up from Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the, Holy, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. What an interesting section of verses. We don't know what happened. We don't know if the, the road got washed out by a storm. We don't know if uh, someone got sick, if there was COVID restrictions. We don't, we don't know what kept them from traveling, right? We don't know what was going on. But they're like, obviously, this is not where God's leading, but we're willing, so where do we go? And through discernment, they're led to go to Macedonia. God sometimes leads us to the right ministry opportunity by closing the door to the wrong one. Sometimes doors are closed, but it doesn't mean the ministry is done. 
He's just redirecting. And another thing is God leads us to the right ministry opportunities in a progressive manner. You see how they are, they're willing to go here and then that door closed and they're willing to go here and that door closed. Listen, this is, this is what this means. Begin serving somewhere and then see where God sends. They began serving somewhere. Let's see where God sends us. This means that God uses people who are actively serving, not the ones who are actively sitting. That may sound a little forward and a little harsh, but it's true. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Send me, Lord. I'm ready to make disciples who make disciples. And that means that we begin serving, and we can begin serving even now. Verse 10 says, And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We. You see how the language changes there in the narrative? That means Luke's part of the journey. Luke's now an eyewitness writing these things. Not just that he's doing research, but he's there. He's involved. And you see the narrative slow down. He indicates that he's there. And also he's concluding, which means that they, that indicates discernment. A lot of us in here, we need to discern where God wants us to serve. Let me show you. Number one, discernment is the process of obeying God's written will in Scripture. There's some of us that want to, oh, I, want to I want God to use me. I want God to use me. Let me ask you are, you, are you submitting yourself to this first? Does your life represent someone who's, who's a disciple, who's fighting against impurities, that's fighting against the things of this world, the culture, all the things are being thrown at you? Are you someone who's walking in faith and love? We begin by submitting ourselves to God's written will in his scriptures. Number two, discernment is a process of being sensitive to the Spirit's prompting. There's a dream here. I'm not saying that he always sends dreams, but there is a conviction, there's a leading, and there's a guiding when the Holy Spirit lives within us. And sometimes we go, oh, that must have been the burrito. No, that might be the Spirit telling you to do something, right? Leading you and urging you, guiding you. And discernment is a process of seeking godly counsel. You know what, I'm I'm feeling this. I I know it aligns with God's word. I know the Spirit's working within me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go talk to someone who's doing this, who's actually involved in this ministry, and and just see what God's doing, see what God's up to. So we make disciples who make disciples out of young students. Number two, disciples make disciples out of seekers, verses 11 through 15. So setting sail from Troas, they made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if, I, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This lady, Lydia, she was from a town in Western Turkey that was known for its purple cloth and purple goods. The purple garments, these garments that would have been bought, they were a status symbol 
They would have been bought by Roman emperors and senators and the wealthy. And so she has moved her business to this Roman colony where she can have a more lucrative career as a businesswoman. And so that's exactly what she's doing. Yet it tells us that she's moved her way outside of the city on the Sabbath to meet at a time of prayer because she's a worshiper of God. Now, what's the reason behind that? Because the Romans had now pushed out the Jews so they can't meet in the synagogues. So they were to try to find a place to gather near water so that they could follow the ceremonial washing. So Paul and Silas and Luke and them, they, they decide, like, look, let's walk out here and let's see if we can find where everyone's meeting. And they find this group of women in a prayer meeting, and they begin to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to see what happens here. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What an interesting wording there. And after that, she was baptized. The Lord opened her heart. This gives you the imagery of fertile soil. I mean, think about this. Lydia represents every person who sits week after week in prayer meeting and service, in a worship service, who may have heard about God, who may claim to be a worshiper of God, but has never had their heart opened by God so that he can implant his word and change their hearts. So this is a woman who, by all means, is a seeker. She, she believes that she's a, a good person. She's wealthy. She really doesn't need anything, but yet she longs to be associated with the people of God. And God opens her heart to pay attention to what was said. How interesting is this? This is the imagery of the seed taking root. You know how hard it is to pay attention? I mean, I'm looking at your faces, right? So uh, you know how hard it is to pay attention? That was a joke. I'm kidding. Y'all are doing a really good job. <laughs> you know, they say that your attention span is roughly the amount of years you've been alive. So some of you, you're hanging in really good. And some of you are, you're, you're getting to that level, right? We're like 12 minutes in. So you're, uh, So it's really hard to pay attention. There are people who sit in, in services week after week after week who have not had their hearts opened by God, who sit week after week and don't pay attention to the gospel. And the, and the reason I know this is because there are people who give testimony after testimony after testimony. I was raised in church. I was raised in church. Anybody have a testimony like that? I was raised in church. And then one day, I never heard that before. I never knew the gospel. I thought it was all about moral conformity and being a better person. But all of a sudden, one day, God opened up my heart and I received his word and he changed me. Praise God for those moments, right? Lydia represents that. And after she was baptized and her household as well. So you've got the imagery of fertile soil. You have the imagery of the seed taking root. And you have the imagery of fruit being born. This was an outward appearance of an inward change. Listen, John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. We need to pray for people's hearts in church to be opened. James 1, says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We need to pray that the word of God that comes forth that is proclaimed inside churches would take root in people's hearts. It would lead them towards salvation. And number three, Romans 6, 4 says, 
We were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We need to pray that there would be an outward example of the fruit of repentance in people's lives, that we would see people, number one, be baptized because that was an outward appearance of an inward change, but yet their lives would be ones that walk with the fruit of repentance. I give you these two because now we're going to shift gears. These two discipleship models happen inside the church. There's young people that have to grow up in the church, and there's people who are sitting week after week in the pews of the church that desperately need God to open up their hearts. But now we're going to move outside of the four walls of the church, and we're going to realize that there are people who need to be discipled on the streets. There are people who need to be discipled who are just doing their job week after week. Who are just, I'm just let me do my job. That desperately need to hear the good news of the gospel. So, Acts 16, starting verse 16 and going through 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's a true statement, isn't it? It wasn't wasn't derogatory, it just came out. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Let's pause right there. We have a tendency to close our eyes to the things of this world that we don't want to see. We have a tendency to come into church and act like everything's okay. But in reality, there's people who are enslaved all, over, all around us. There are people who are enslaved to sin. They're enslaved to self. They're enslaved to sexual immorality and impurity and even sex trafficking. David Platt writes this, Surveys consistently show that over half of men and increasing numbers of women in churches are actively viewing pornography. Every time a man or a woman views pornography online, we are contributing to a cycle of sex slavery from the privacy of our own computers. We are fueling an industry that enslaves people for sex in order to satisfy selfish pleasures in our own living rooms, our offices, and our mobile phones. People are not inferior objects to be used and abused for selfish, sexual, sensual pleasures. They are equal image bearers of the God who loves and cares for them. We may scoff at how pre-Civil War churchgoers justified slaves in their backyards, but Aren't we dangerously like them when we participate in pornography and promote a sex slavery to which it is tied in our own homes? There are people who are enslaved that we can't ignore. There are people on the streets that desperately need to be set free. And let me tell you, God's plan is to use the church. God's plan is to use the church. People. The body. People like you and me who are willing to step outside of these four walls and not call Christianity the gathering here, but to call Christianity a lifestyle that we now are willing to engage people who desperately need to know the love of Jesus Christ. And so there are people who are enslaved. And church, we can't turn a deaf ear to it or a blind eye and pretend it's not there and live in our Christian comfortable bubbles. We need to be a people who are willing to get our hands dirty in discipleship. 
This poor lady was being used by people. Some people are slaves to someone or something, and they're being used. Verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This young lady, she was literally enslaved, and the the wording here is she was enslaved to a spirit of python, not just a spirit of divination. In the temple that was near there, the temple of Apollo, they were it was said to be guarded by a python. This lady was literally demon-possessed by a serpent. It was giving her owners much gain. And when they saw that she had been set free, they lashed back out. Church, the reason a lot of us don't get involved is because we know that we will be attacked if we mess up things, right? If we move in and we begin to mess with people's Incomes, and we begin to mess with people's ways of life and their ways of doing business because they don't fit what we believe to be biblical, we know they'll, they'll lash back out at us. This is a culture that then says, look, these people are practicing things and doing things that are not custom for us as Roman citizens. Listen, basically what that says is they're practicing their beliefs in a way that is, inf- that is infringing on our benefits and our money and our businesses, and we don't want them doing it anymore. This is a culture. Let me get this. This is a culture, Roman culture, that then begins to lash out at these men who are living out their faith in such a way that it is beginning to affect their business. Do you think it's possible to live in a culture that will attack Christians when Christians begin to interfere with their business? Yes, this is not far-fetched. This is not like some made-up story. This is truth. This is what happens. Discipleship is not just in the church. It needs to also happen in the streets where people are enslaved. And here's the fourth one. Disciples make disciples out of spectators. Verses 25 through 40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your, and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night 
and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But then, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly. Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. What a remarkable story of what took place. Paul and Silas, they had been beaten. They were bloody. They were then taken and thrown into the most inner part of the prison, the dungeon part of the prison. And they had their, wo- their legs and their feet shackled in stocks. John Polhill, he writes it this way. He says, their feet were placed in wooden stocks, which were likely fastened to the wall. Often such stocks were used as instruments of torture. They had a number of holes for the legs, which allowed for severe stretching of the torso and thus created excruciating pain. Get this imagery. What was that verse we read? And about midnight, as they're in the dungeon, having been beaten bleeding everywhere, in a torture chamber, they're singing and worshiping God. And all the prisoners are listening. There's a lot of spectators in that prison that day, watching the witness of two men who are in desperate love with Jesus Christ. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Listen, this is what it teaches us. Worship is not dictated by a particular place, a proper position, or a personal preference. It is dictated by your posture of heart. We can come in here week after week, and if our hearts are not in the right posture of worship, we will not worship. It doesn't matter if it's the preference of music we like. It doesn't matter if it's the position of the, of the band that we like, or the position of the instruments, or any of those things, or the lights, or the comfortable seats, or the place. It all has to do with the posture of the heart. People who look to place for a place, a position, and a preference for a means of worship are looking for an outward stimulus because there is no inner posture of worship without it. What I mean by that is they're looking for something as an outside trigger, Oh, I can worship there. Oh, did you like how they did that? Did you see that? When they, when they hit that bridge, the smoke came in. It was awesome. These outward triggers, the posture of the heart. Paul and Silas teach us that even in prison, even in a torture chamber, beaten, tired, we can worship. Let me ask you, can you worship? Do you have such a love of God that you can worship in spite of circumstances? Has he opened your heart 
Has he implanted his word in you in such a way that you bear fruit and the fruit of repentance in your life is a life of worship? These spectators, the jailer, what must I do to be saved? What led him to that decision? It was the witness. Listen, our discipleship, our discipleship opportunities come when spectators in this world see our worship. And I don't mean this worship, our lives of worship. When our lives are lives of worship, people will ask, hey, why are you different? Why is your Christianity not just something you do on Sunday? There's something different about you. Discipleship happens when our lives worship. I have a good friend. His name's Jackie Watts. He's a pastor in South Georgia. We've done a lot of ministry opportunities together, and he said this, and I'm going to quote him. If we were first-generation disciples, how far would Christianity go? If it was up to us, living our lives day in and day out, what would the spread of the gospel look like? We're all called to be disciples who make disciples. Some of those happen inside the church, young kids raised up in the faith. Some of those happen inside the pews, people who come week after week who who would say, I'm a worshiper of God, who need to have their hearts open. We need to make disciples outside of these walls as well, people who are enslaved to sin. We need to make disciples of people who are just going through their everyday life who see the witness of people who love Jesus, who worship. If it was up to us, how far would Christianity go? Can we pray? Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you formed the church. You formed the church there out of a a lady at a Bible study, a woman who was enslaved, and a Philippian jailer who was just trying to do his job. Lord, you unite us today as your body, all different parts, all different backgrounds, but united in the cross. Lord, we thank you for your church. We would ask God that you would make us a disciple-making church. Lord, that this week, we would begin the dirty process of getting involved in little kids' lives, that we would raise them up in the faith, that there would be a fruit in their life of discipleship. Lord, that we would see that there are people that we sit next to week after week that desperately need the love of Jesus Christ in their heart. Father, that you would open our eyes to a world that is dark. You would open our eyes to people who are hurting, that are enslaved, that we can come alongside, that we can help. God, that you would open our eyes, that the way we live is a witness a witness to this world. Father, forgive us when we fail you. Father, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I pray that this morning they would surrender their life to you, that they would believe, they would confess, and they would give their whole life to you. Father, we worship you right now in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.